In a world gone mad, only rationality and common sense can save it. It's Andrew and Jerry Save the World with your hosts, Andrew Langer and Jerry Rogers. And now, here's Andrew and Jerry. Hey, everybody. Uh, It is not both Andrew and Jerry. It is just me, Andrew Langer, coming to you with what I'm going to term a very special episode of Andrew and Jerry Save the World. I know that's a cliche way of putting it. Uh, Nevertheless, we're putting it this way. Uh, This is not how I had envisioned episode two rolling out. Uh, but there was a, an event uh, that happened over the weekend, learned about it today, that really prompted me to go ahead and and put this this particular episode together. Uh, over the weekend, I, I, I'll say this much, I'm recording this on Monday, uh, December 27th, 2021. Uh, as I was coming home today from some errands, I got a message from listener Marty letting me know that Richard Marcinko had passed away. Richard Marcinko, who was a member of SEAL Team 2, was a commanding officer of SEAL Team 2, was the founder of SEAL Team 6, uh, and the author of a book that I loved when I was in my 20s and, and taught me a great deal. Uh, the, the author of a book called Rogue Warrior, and there was a whole branding around the Rogue Warrior concept. Um, Richard Marcinko passed uh, uh, over the weekend. He passed on Christmas Day uh, at the age of 81. And as it happens, uh, 10 years ago, I had interviewed uh, Lieutenant Commander Marcinko uh, for one of my early podcasts, the Liberty Line podcast. And I and it was a, a wide ranging interview. It was about a half hour. Uh, you can you know we're teeing it up now and we're gonna you're gonna hear that interview in its entirety in just in just a moment. Um, but uh, a wide ranging conversation of about a half hour with Richard Marcinko talking about his books and talking about his philosophy and talking about his exploits and his achievements. Um, and it's it is a it is a fun interview. It's an interesting interview. You're gonna hear very junior podcasting me. Uh, a junior broadcaster, me again from more than a decade ago. This is before I had even done my first stint on WBAL. Uh, I was uh, I had done um, I had done my own podcast, and then and then and then a transition a couple months later to working with uh, a guy named Mark Nugent doing a podcast called The Broadside with him. This is before even The Broadside happened. Um, but I was at that sort of early edge, early adopting uh, of this. I, and one of the people I wanted to reach out to was Richard Marcinko, uh, whose books I had read and I watched some of his specials and listened to his audiobooks and uh, was a, was a huge fan and was very interested in both uh, what he had done while he was in the military and what he'd done with SEAL Team 2 and with SEAL Team 6, uh, what he did afterwards with Red Cell and then sort of his general philosophy uh, towards life. Uh, I wanted to, to sit down and chat with him. It's funny. I'll tell a little anecdote, uh, and I'll, I'll say some words uh, after the uh, after the the podcast uh, after the interview is over. Uh, but it's funny because my one of my uh, he and I both shared this love of Richard Marcinko's writing uh, and the stories, and in fact had read some of the stories of other people uh, with whom uh, Richard Marcinko served, uh, both in Vietnam and and elsewhere. Uh, and one of them was a guy named Harry Humphreys, who tells a story about being in a town, I think it's Chow Doc, I don't remember offhand. But it's funny, because I remembered this particular exploit. There's my dog in the background. I am watching, uh, a couple of months back, uh, the the Grand Tour, which is the 
successor series of Richard Hammond and James May and um, um, and now I can't think of his name. Jeremy, uh, uh, Jeremy Clarkson, uh, their successor to Top Gear that's on Amazon. And in one of their series, they had traveled to Vietnam and they were traveling through Vietnam by boat. And Jeremy Clarkson was in what's called a PBR. And they pull up to this town called, I think it's Chow Doc, and they start telling this story. And and I'm listening to Jeremy Clarkson tell the story about a group of special operators who had saved some nurses. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is the story out of... Uh, out of uh, both Rogue Warrior and I think Point Man, a couple of different books uh, tell this story. And it's funny because I bring my bro over uh, the same day and I have him watch this segment and he's immediately able to identify uh, this uh, this uh, story and where it came from. And it was a fun little thing. So anyway, without further ado, uh, the, uh, let me let me tee this up. So this is this was an interview that I did with Richard Marcinko in May of uh, May of 2011. Uh, and so he, this is before even his 70th birthday. He's still in his late 60s. Uh, but without further ado, here is my interview with Richard Marcinko. Uh, Commander Marcinko, are you there? Yes, I'm here standing by. Well, thank you for joining us on the Liberty Line uh, today. This is, uh, of course, Commander Richard Marcinko, the rogue warrior himself, uh, founder and conceiver of uh, SEAL Team 6. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Happy to be able, you know, be alive to be on a program. And, yes, that's a believe. And with the life, and with the life you've led, b- believe me, I, I, uh, it is, it is a. I'm sure you, you, you wonder how, how you've made it this far. Well, I've had, I've had a lot of people try to figure out why I didn't have a demise and quit harassing them. Well, but, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the, uh, the very, very careful way when, when push comes to shove, uh, preparation and training and having good folks around you, I'm sure, has helped. Oh yeah, and training is the key. In fact, uh, I was just talking to my son, and and I've always said that uh, you know I won't, I don't think I'll die if it's you know the demise of an enemy. It'll be doing some dumb project at home, saying ah, I can do that, and blow myself across the pond or something, or you know curl my hair with two twenty. And uh, that's exactly I, I, right. Yeah. Oh, it's funny you say that because I was I was home at my folks' house up in New York, oh uh, uh, Easter weekend. And um, I, I was hanging. I decided that I was going to hang a tire swing in my parents' backyard for my girls. And my dad, uh, my dad got very angry that I just climbed up the tree and tied this thing up there. And I went up the tree, I think, to, uh, three or four times to get it right. And as my, my was we're driving away, my wife said, "You know, your dad was really paranoid. He, he was, he was, you know, and not really paranoid, but he was convinced you were going to fall out of that tree. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's the sort of the little things we decide to do on a whim that get us into trouble. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly. You know, it's why oh, it can't happen to me. Or, oh, that's too easy. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly uh, right. Yeah. Well, this this is why we wanted to have you on, and this is an interview that I've been wanting to do forever and a day. Uh, I am a huge uh, fan and admirer of yours. I've read. Uh, all of your books, uh, starting with Rogue Warrior, back when uh, back in in the early '90s, uh, uh, my office mate uh, at the place I was working in DC handed it to me and said, "Do you want to read this book?" But uh, a huge admirer of yours, and and when I say, uh, folks, that uh, uh, Commander Marcinko is the conceiver and founder of SEAL Team Six, uh, let's sort of, if we can go back to that time, uh, 1980. 
Uh, you are at the Pentagon as the debacle at uh, Desert One happens, and it becomes clear that that uh, um, as wonderful and as great as Delta Force is, something new needs to be created. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That's uh, not necessarily a fond memory, but it's no, a no, memory. no. It's not a happy. No, believe me. Well, and and, and that's just it. Yeah. I mean, we all know it's not. It was. Uh, you, uh, when when you read Rogue Warrior and you have a very uh, a very honest sort of account of your frustration both dealing with the higher ups at the Pentagon who were planning what was we all had hoped was would not have been a doomed operation but was in fact a doomed operation and you watch it all go to go from a uh, 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 snafu to fubar immediately um, something needed something needed to change and you actually came up with an answer. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things, timing, I was the, the wrong guy at the right place, but, but it, it was it was a debacle in, in terms of we basically trained for months uh, to do it. When I say we, the, the joint forces uh, across the United States uh, under a joint task force configuration, and uh, probably what annoyed me the most about it was that the chairman at the time was David Jones, yeah. who was a brilliant guy, I'm assuming. <laughs> I think he just lacked, he lacked common sense. He was very bright. And he, besides all the staff officers that the Pentagon throws at for something like this, he had his little mini tank where you know only his guys that he brought into, I guess, second guess what the other service planners were talking about. And what what bothered me is he'd never been to war. I yeah. mean, he's one of those uh, worst kids that never went to war and doesn't understand Murphy's law of what can go wrong and and you know what it takes uh, to trudge that stuff up and down those hills and to do things. So, so that 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 alienated me, and uh, you know it was an embarrassment. And uh, <clears throat> but what did come out good, and, and that's where the story begins, is. Because Admiral Holloway uh, was a four-star retired aviator, and he headed up a, a commission that studied what went wrong. And the the white paper that came out of that basically said, "No more part-time help. If we're going to do counterterrorism, uh, then we need a standing force that that does that. And that's all we do." And, and so that was the formulation of, of a Joint Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg. And of course, the Army component was Delta with Charlie Beckworth, and uh, I started up SEAL Team Six and the Army helicopter group out of uh, uh, out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, formed the uh, Task Force 160, and the Air Force pulled their uh, their helicopters that can be refueled and their gunships, C-130 gunships, and their assets out of the. Uh, Special Ops Wing down at Herbert Field, Florida. So, yeah, my my wife my wife and I actually lived on the edge of uh, of Herbert Field for well, she was down there for three years. I was there for two, and I actually did some of my graduate work uh, uh, out of a building on on Herbert Fields. It, always very intense uh, being there when they were doing training operations. Yeah, well, you know, Duke, Duke Field gets a lot of a lot of exercise, and uh, it, it's been a warm-up spot for real missions for you know, for decades, that's for sure. Well, and and that and I guess brings us to, to where we are. So SEAL Team 6 was conceived as a highly mobile uh, operational counterterrorism unit 
Uh, I believe it was what uh, was it four or six platoons as originally conceived. Where are they now, as far as you can tell? I mean, obviously it's grown much bigger than you had envisioned. Oh, oh yeah. Um, as as you are hinting, I can't tell you. <laughs> sure. No, no, I yeah, understand. I can tell you that in the in terms of, I started with seventy five shooters and a total strength of a hundred people. And and now I can tell you that that the shooters, uh, the trigger pros are actually in the low hundreds. The uh, civilian contractors are in the low hundreds. Uh, they have their own communications group. They have their own people that are not seals to drive their boats. Okay. Uh, and they have their own their own satellite and intel combined so that the you know it's a, when they pick up when they pick up a little c5 to move or multiple c141s or multiple 130s uh they are intact to ready to go to uh, kick ass anyway they're, they're just a full full load now, now, it's a trade-off, though, isn't it? I mean, in terms of now, it's great that they have, obviously, all of these capabilities, but it's a trade-off in that mobility, I would think, wouldn't it be? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and it, I mean, they've learned to work around it. They, they uh, deployed in, in, in a matter that they, they, they're fragmented as they, as they leave camp. They don't, they don't go out the door altogether, and they come in from different angles, so, so you wouldn't see the, the whole glob come, but... Now, 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 I guess over the last, so SEAL Team Six conceived in, uh, you know, roundabout. I guess you became the the founding CEO of SEAL Team Six in '81, as I recall, right? Or was it '82? September 1980. September 1980. So, so yeah. we're really at, at just over 31, 31 years. years. This, this, uh, this September coming up. And in that time, obviously, they filled in uh, now the other uh, SEAL teams that were not in existence. As you aptly point out, one of the reasons why you went with SEAL Team 6 was to confuse our enemies over in Russia and make them think that there were a bunch of other SEAL teams out there. We've now filled in those gaps, as I recall, uh, with, with multiple SEAL teams. Um, so how how does this sort of change the, the capability? You know, is SEAL Team 6 still focused entirely on counterterror, if you can even talk about that? And how does this differentiate itself with the other SEAL teams uh, as differentiated from SEAL Teams 1 and 2, which were the original two SEAL Team units that were formed. You, of course, having been commanding officer of SEAL Team 2 before you were the founder of SEAL Team 6. Well, uh, they you know, they still have 1 and 2. Uh, odd numbers are on the West Coast, and even numbers are uh, are on the East Coast, just uh, for those who want to figure out where they're at. Yeah. Uh, but they, what, how they got the extra numbers is they... They changed underwater demolition teams to SEAL teams, which uh, was easy to do in terms. If you look at the the publications, the wartime publications, uh, what what the SEALs do as a mission is a task to an underwater demolition team, and what an underwater demolition team did for a mission was a task for a SEAL teams. So, so it was a trade up and a good English major could have worked it out real sure. Really easy. So, duh. Why don't we have more bang for the buck and marry these two together? Uh, but it, you know, it was a morale thing, and underwater demolition team was basically focused and supported the amphibious force for landing the Marines, which is a World War II mentality and a World, world War II uh, mission. 
Yeah, these so, are the guys who used to swim in in advance of everybody else, blow up uh, uh, the reefs so that the, the, the boats could actually land with the Marines on them or whomever. Uh, absolutely vital duty. The guys who used to do the underwater oceanographic uh, surveying, which is, in fact, how you, sort of your entree into the SEALs was was by going to Frogman School. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, in 1950, there was a movie out with Richard Widmark in black and white called Frogman. And uh, I, I saw that as a youngster. I said, gee, that looks like me. And in uh, 1958, I raised my hand, and there I was, me. <laughs> but it, uh, it was uh, 60, 1960 till I, I got the training. So it, it, just, it took me a little, little longer to get there because of uh, bureaucratic rules. <laughs> yeah, that, that, and, and, and the ways that you went about creatively uh, uh, bending those, those uh, bureaucratic rules to your, uh, to your whim is, is a study in, in how to cut through bureaucratic red tape, certainly. Yeah, it, it, was, it was fun, um, beating, beating the system. So let's, let's talk about this. So we've now, it, we, we, were, we were hunting Osama bin Laden for 10 years. It, it really was inevitable that it was going to be a unit out of SEAL Team 6 that was going to get him, don't you think? In my mind, and you know, of course, you know, I'm a proud papa, and naturally, I, you know, I think it uh, only befitting that that they do it. But yeah, when you look at it realistically, or you try to figure out why wasn't a Delta, um, Delta could do it. Uh, Deltas, I mean, you could take. In my mind, you could take the shooters from any of the organizations and transport them, and and they work together. Particularly now. After all these years, I mean, they they go through the door the same way. Uh, there is a slight change in uh, in, in uh, weapons, for example, uh, because when you come out of the water, um, you have a problem with uh, having water in your barrel. So sure. You, you know, so you, you you do change. There's a slight change there, and we we do a little, you know we do the diving, which means our, our kit's loaded a little a little different, but. Uh, I, I think the the fairest way to de- describe uh, uh, the difference, I guess, is, is called numbers. Uh, and uh, if you look at all the special forces that there are in the world, uh, U.S. Army special forces, yeah, uh, reserve uh, and active duty, uh, they're over twenty thousand. If you take all the SEALs reserves. In, in in the world, they're around figure six thousand. Wow. Uh, then then play the numbers game one more time. Uh, uh, based on the last census, less than one percent of the population of the United States carry a DOD ID card in reserves, active duty, National Guard, and, you know, which is a not many, you know, less than one percent defending a nation, and the other ninety-nine are doing something else. So you you figure that you get an all-volunteer force. There's a number cut there. Uh, if they get they, they volunteer to go to Bud's basic underwater demolition seal training in Colorado, sure. which is six months long, uh, since the fifties, the, the the graduating number stays somewhere between twenty-three to twenty-seven percent. So that's a huge cut uh, of, of uh, taking people out of, the, out of the process. And they now run five classes a year, and, and they don't get like 100 people into a class. They make sure. 50 or 60, you know, it depends on, 
what the mood is that day or that month. And uh, then they, they, they go to an active team, another SEAL team, and probably I can explain that one. In a, SEAL Team 6 works for the National Command Authority. Yes. You know, so they don't work for the Navy. The other SEAL teams work for the Navy. I, yes, that's a very, very important distinction. It, that, that chain of command is incredibly important. And you, in fact, set it up that way. That's right. They haven't been happy with me ever since. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the other teams work in support of whoever the other commander is if they're, they're going to war. Six is paid by the Navy, trained by the Navy. They are Navy, uh, but somebody else takes them to play in, in war. Sure. Uh, so anyway, you, you've got the, these people that, you know, it's 23 to 27% that graduated from BUDS. And they and they go to a normal team, and they'll work two, three, four years there, um, honing their skills that they got out of basic training uh, for, to be a SEAL, and demonstrating now how you operate as a team versus an individual making it through training, and of course picking up uh, advanced training in weapons and diving and jumping and all those other little fun and games, outward bound stuff. Uh, then the you know, people will. Can apply to those six and hope it works, or they get selected based on shortfall. Sure. And then they go to a green team at SEAL Team Six, and green team is is, is the training cadre uh, that that calls through the candidates to see who's going to really be you know make it to six. And sometimes it can be as high as 50% don't make it, and that doesn't mean they're not good seals. They just don't have that the special uh, yeah. dynamics that make make the difference to SEAL Team Six. And you set those standards. I mean, that, yeah, and you make it really clear in Rogue Warrior, uh, which is which, by the way, everybody is still available from Amazon.com. Um, uh, I highly recommend you pick it up because not only does it contain this really great history of 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 uh, the Navy SEALs and and the creation of SEAL Team Six, but also some incredible. Uh, bits of personal philosophy by Commander Marcinko, but but let's sort of talking about those those things. I mean, you set some some standards that were different because you didn't necessarily want the guys who breezed through everything and were always sort of at the top. You wanted the guys who could slug it out and had that that certain you know I'm going to kick ass and take names no matter what. I mean, whether or not I've been in it for you know a day or a month or what have you. The guys who could get in through the back door uh, and and hop and pop, as you say, um, and who and who will you know put bullets on target when when the, the their backs were against the wall. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, corporate world and, and uh, um, you know when you form form something new, uh, the natural tendency is, is to select the one percenters. And, and in the Navy, under evaluations, uh, they have windows of one to five percent, and and it, it goes down down to the lower, the higher numbers and a lower quality, supposedly. Sure. Uh, and what happens is, is that if you, nothing wrong with picking one percenters, uh, but I find out, and my belief is, is that some of them uh, have never failed, so they they've never experienced a failure, so you don't know how they're going to handle one. And the other thing is they you know they're natural. Dancing gazelles, they shoot good, they dive, uh, you know, everything comes natural to them. And, and so they have all these trophy pennants, you know, from growing up, and, and uh, they're fine. 
the other quality, of course, is, is the guy that I call sled dogs, and you know, they fight every day. Every day, it's it's just a, a struggle to do something uh, that they didn't particularly like to do, or they just uh, just have to be uh, I, I call them the, you know, the diligent Dutchman, and, and they they've got to work it out in the pattern, otherwise it doesn't fit. Well, when those guys have a terrible day, it's just another day. I mean, there's nothing different. So you know that when it turns to the proverbial, that they're gonna they're gonna function and they're going to be there as a guarantee. You don't know what this golden boy is going to do because he's never been in that situation before. Well, and it, and it gets down to those those two really important bits of philosophy, you know, the the, the many rules of, of spec war as you've put them together. Uh, the only easy day was yesterday, and you don't have to like it, you just have to do it, which are two, you know, such important maxims for both leaders and, and, and well, I would not say followers, but leaders and team members alike, I would think. I mean, that's that's a very important and very very good way of looking at the world, at least in terms of being able to create an organization that is successful and can weather difficulties yeah it's uh the the books and basically the way way i I ran things uh went on the principle of keep it simple stupid yes uh because uh when you're in combat or you're under stress you you don't have the the luxury of taking time out to explain why and and in a society of the last several decades uh it's been natural for for children and subordinates to say, "But why?" Yes, because well, I said so, and I do it. Shut up, you know. I, and see, and that gets actually into into so sort of bringing it back to this mission that happened uh, a week ago Sunday. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where I guess in terms of the studying that I've done, um, you know, that's why I found the questions that some folks asked afterwards or the comments that were made and the folks who were sort of questioning the multiple stories that were coming out, I found the whole thing so dumb because, A, you have the friction of war in which information changes. None of us were on the ground. The, the SEALs who were there were there. Um, you know, these, th- this, is, this is all part and parcel of the operational environment, I would think. Yeah, and, and, and that's why you needed a dedicated force that does this and only this, uh, if you look at the targets that are uh, potential targets, I mean, this was a almost a hostage rescue, except that there was no hostage. So that makes it an easier target or an easier job in that you don't have to worry about hitting a hostage and negating the success because you killed two hostages in the process. I mean, that's what your mission was. This was a go in there and and if it moves, shoot it. And, you know, all you wanted to do is make sure it was bin Laden versus doing with a 2,000-pound bomb yeah. that you couldn't verify that it was him. So, you know, that having said that, that sounds like it was a, a cakewalk. It wasn't, and it was only half the mission. The other half was getting out of there after there was no longer a surprise with the helicopter hitting the wall and, and the shooting going on. Uh, and, you know, I, I put myself in, in the the mental picture of if if you were a mafia kingpin or if you were a drug yeah. lord, you'd have more people in the compound, one. But more importantly, you'd have a reaction force down the street a little bit. Sure. And none of that was there, you know, which tells me uh, somebody thought that the Pakistanis were going to save his ass 
and he didn't have a threat living where he was. Which is all the all the more reason why we didn't let the Pakistanis in on this whole thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which yeah. which yeah. may have been the smartest decision that this administration made in terms of uh, this operation, I would think. Well, you know, for me, watching, having gone through the raid in Iran and watching that debacle and the embarrassment, and then watching this, the way it unfolded, it was like one we as a nation needed a shot in the arm right now with the economy. Absolutely. And all, all that's going on. And then the forces that have been you know, doing these kind of missions for over 30 years now, almost 31, uh, to find the finally getting the prime target that they've been chasing for over nine years, and, and to know that, geez, they had them in their place once, you know, several times before, and the weather chick or he left, or a policymaker said, uh, not right now, I don't think so. Um, I mean, they've, they've been standing in the door ready to go before, and, and I bet you that's a, that was the biggest fear that they had, was that before they launched, somebody just say a hiccup and say, uh, not yet. And, uh, you know, that just rips you apart. Well, then, then let's let's talk about that. It just And I know your your time is running down because there are a couple of things I do want to ask you. But, but you know, this issue of overtraining and overpreparation, I mean, that's when you're dealing with, with uh, the, the sharp instrument of, of special operations, that can really destroy the mission, the mission potential, right? Well, you, get, uh, you, you don't want to get so familiar with it that you're that you're not sharp as the razor's edge, and and that you're you get a little sloppy. You know, so the familiarity breeds contempt. Um, but you know, they did rehearse on a, on a mock-up, and they did have it down. And and one of the other reasons that we haven't, you know, you have to be able to you have to be able to do the love boats and you have to be able to do airplanes and subways and trains and nuclear facilities and uh, hotels and schools. So although the the results basically are always the same, saving the hostages or killing the bad guys, uh, getting there is always a little different. Uh, and for SEAL, uh, because of the maritime environment, They've done a day's work before they go through the door. Sure. And, and that's why they're, I think, they're kind of a bigger cutting edge besides the number game I, you know, talked about before. Yeah. Now, so, so you are, uh, you, you know, you've, you've, you've written the books. Uh, I know you've, you've started a couple of successful businesses. What are you up to now? Well, the 18th book comes out this month. Fact, wow. My copies. <laughs> yeah. That's what and I what, it, what, what is it called? Uh, Domino Theory. Domino theory, okay. Yeah, it's it's a um, it is a well. I have the autobiography which you read. Yes. I have three business books that were kind of my off-season books. I've one read for those. The individual, one for the middle manager, and then how you pick a team and keep a team. And those were all based on fans that said, uh, "Tell me how you did it." And then I was from that I went into uh, novels, uh, but kept me as the fictional real person in it, which was a I guess a, a blessing. Sure. And, and, and they're really uh, all the novels are what I call fiction or prediction. And and I'm I'm now going at 100 percent of what I wrote in the novels has comes eventually comes true. Uh, the one that's coming out now, Domino Theory, is person in by and the uh, the heavy behind the scenes that comes out of Pakistan. Well, we were done wrong. Wow. And, you know, I, I did a piece, I guess, 
probably four years ago, where I wrote the dates of the manuscript, the thesis of the manuscript, and then went and read off what's in the down. That was like the manuscript. Wow. And, and, and it's, you know, it's my red song mentality uh, of, this, of thinking, if I was a bad guy, what would I be doing? You know? And, uh, that's that's an important thought process, I, and I know the Pentagon has relied on folks, uh, both inside and outside of the uh, the military community, to help them think outside the box on a lot of these things. Uh, I know they've brought in some mili- uh, some uh, folks from Hollywood to do it. Uh, I know that um, uh, Skunk Baxter, who's frankly a mu- mu- musician with the with the Doobie Brothers and Steely Dan, he's done some uh, uh, conceptualizing work with them. Uh, it's important to to have those folks thinking outside the box and uh, conceiving of what could occur. Yeah, it, it is. I, I mean, first of all, we're talking about special operations. So if you don't think out of the box, then you're taking the word special out of operations. An excellent point. And 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 that's you know that's the key. And the reason that they're so well they have to be so well trained is because they're going to have instantaneous modifications and decision making. When things happen, uh, if, if we just, you know, we started this interview off with, with Iran, well, what was that? That was a helicopter that, that messed up because the sand in the filters that yep. had a lousy liftoff that just hit the 130 and the tanks went up and, and that canceled the mission. Well, today we got that expensive uh, uh, special helicopter that could slip in there and was quiet, hit the wall, but now because they trained together. And they're a dedicated force. You know, the dirty stuff and the student went to the stuff and the backup birds to the pick everybody up. I mean, it was just a dance of the birds. I mean, there was no, there was no hiccup because they, they, they train and practice the what if drills. It's absolutely, absolutely true. So let me ask you this before we go. So are we going to, uh, are we going to find you at some point like uh, your colleague Rudy uh, showing up on an episode of Survivor? I, I don't think I'll go on Survivor. No, <laughs> and, and I, when I had my own talk radio show, I used to say that you know, uh, since I live in Northern Virginia outside D.C., that maybe I I should just you know, King Richard has a nice ring to it, and burn D.C. the ground and go back to go back to Texas there all over again with constitutional law. Um, but uh, no, I, I, you know, perhaps uh, there may be a, some TV work in the offing. Uh, I, I never quit my day job and. I still have a security company, and I still do corporate speeches, and um, I've already submitted the outline for the 19th book. So, uh, Well, uh, if there's anything we at the Institute for Liberty can do for you, you have to let us know. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, it's, a, it, it's just the advantage of radio is that it, it reaches out to, to a lot of people that otherwise don't, don't get to share their thoughts and ideas. And, you know, book tours don't go everywhere. Uh, when you're hot and, and when the industry like it is now is uh, at a low, low end uh, because of e-books and everything else, uh, you, you need radio. I mean, radio becomes a, becomes a big muscle. I, I, I could not agree more. Well, listen, uh, Commander Richard Marcinko, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invite. And uh, anytime the second wheel wheel comes down, you've got my number. We'll see if I predict it or they stick with me. Well, thank you. Take care. All right. Good night. Bye. So that's my interview uh, from 10 years ago with Richard Marcinko. 
Uh, and I hope you enjoyed it. As you could probably tell, I enjoyed it a great deal. You can certainly see the change in how I do media, how I do my interviews between then and now. I, I'd like to think that I got better at it. Uh, but yeah, you know, I tried to get him back. I tried to get him back a number of different times, probably four or five times in the last year, year and a half alone. I know I, I reached out to him certainly last Veterans Day, maybe even this Veterans Day, Memorial Day, 4th of July. You know, around those holidays when I would do these fill-in stints, uh, I was I was trying to get him on. And I don't know if he was in ill health. I actually don't really know the circumstances surrounding his passing. Um, but, uh, but, uh, could not, could not get him on, could not make it happen. Uh, but as you can tell, right. I mean, th- I was, I certainly was and am a major fanboy uh, of Richard Marcinko and was glad that I could get him on at least even, even 10 years ago to have, have this conversation. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed this. We're going to come back. I'm hoping uh, Jerry and I can record another episode this week. Certainly next week, we're going to try to do these things once a week, get them uploaded on Wednesday so that there's consistency. I uh, want you to please make sure you tell your friends, tell your family members, tell other folks you know who like podcasts about our podcast, Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Uh, you can follow us now. We have a, a the, we converted the old Langercast social media to Andrew and Jerry Save the World. So on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash AJ Save the World. On Twitter, it's at AJ Save the World. Uh, so go and follow us there. You'll get all of the news and information. I uh, hope you all like the new cover art. We may wind up being able to do something with that down the road. But as I always say, guys, have a great week. Uh, have fun and stay safe.